Welcome to all of you joining us in the sanctuary and online today. It's good that we can come together and study God's Word together. If you have a Bible with you today, we're going to be studying Acts 5. You might find some in the back doors also in each of the spaces or with the ushers. God is in control. We believe that. We know that. But do you ever wonder what the world thinks when they hear us say that? Because on the news, we see people dealing with the wreckage of their towns, landslides, violence, wars, immorality, loss. God is in control? What does that mean? Because the world looks so out of control, doesn't it? And it can feel especially far from the control of a God of love. So how do those truths work together? How can our God, who is good, be in control and yet this world be so broken? What do we mean when we proclaim that God is in control? I think the world thinks we're saying that God controls everything in the world to happen just the way that he wants it to, which then, of course, makes them wonder, God wanted all this tragedy and evil to happen? Why should I put my trust in a God like that? But that's not what God is in control means. If God did micromanage every event in human life, there wouldn't be any evil in the world. Scripture tells us that God tempts no one with evil, but in love he chose to give this world freedom. Without freedom, which opens the door for bad as well as good in the world, there also wouldn't be any real love or any chance for us to grow hearts of true discipleship. So because our good God is the one in control, our world has freedom instead of micromanagement. But freedom comes with the cost of the collateral damage of many wrong turns being made in this world and the impact of those choices on all of us. But God didn't leave us to find the answers alone. And neither is this broken world the end of the story. The fact that God is in control doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us in this temporary world. What it does mean is that nothing and no one can ever take away from us what God has promised us in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. And it's in knowing that that we can find peace and hope, even in the hard times, because we know the ending, and we know it's good, that our future is secured through Jesus' death and resurrection by Jesus' power, not by ours. And so the apostles could say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You might understand the to die is gain part in the promise of eternity, but the other part is to live is Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means that when we know that God is in control of our eternal future, we can start to see his bigger purposes at work right now in and through us. Jesus taught us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, which tells us that God's will obviously isn't being done on earth naturally. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to pray for it. Instead, Jesus teaches us to pray that God's will would be done in us. Jesus' prayer shows us that God's will is done in the world through our being willing to surrender our will to his, by responding to his invitation to cooperate with him in a movement bigger than our little lives. God's will is not something he forces to happen in our lives. God's power and love and truth is something that he invites us into. And we grow in experiencing God's power in us. That's living Christ. Now that can be confusing to us because on a human level, we think we know what power looks like. And it kind of looks like the impact of a hammer, a sledgehammer on a rock. 
changing the shape of things into sharp edges of our own design. But God's power, God being in control, often works in a different way. If you can imagine the fractured rocks of monuments to human control, there's a river flowing, running over and around and through a constant flow of God's relentless love and holiness. And one day, all those rocks, those monuments to human control will become smooth rocks in that living stream. If we are the ones who are in control of our lives, what we'll accomplish with our lives will be just as small as our human capabilities, which we might think will serve us just fine, but it's a really little way to live. And eventually, the sands of time will bury our lives into forgetfulness. But when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God, our lives become part of something much bigger than we are, something uncontainable, uncontrollable, something good and eternal. The same life can be lived every day on our power or it can be lived on God's power, but living it is a whole different experience. Martin Luther knew a little something about having to surrender to God's will in the face of earthly powers. He chose to hold true to the word of God and people wanted to kill him for it. But it's only when we let go of any pretense of earthly power and let God lead that we truly find our purpose. Martin Luther once said, of all the things I've ever had, only the things I've surrendered to God do I still possess. Jesus said it in a little different way. He said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And our text today from Acts 5 shows us what happens when we jump into that stream. In the lesson that you heard read a little earlier from Acts 4, we saw how Peter and John were used to heal a man in Jesus' name, and it really upset the people and religious power at the time because something godly, something powerful had happened, and they weren't filtering it. And it was at the hands of these unschooled men in the name of Jesus, and that made them feel insecure and fearful and angry, kind of like the reaction that we have when we feel our power is threatened. We want to crack down with control. And I think this biblical situation has a lot to teach us. So if you have your Bible with you, open to Acts 5. It's on page 1600, if you have one of the Bibles from this space today. We're going to stay in this chapter and look at this text in depth today. So Peter, John, and the apostles were teaching and healing in Jesus' name. We're going to start with verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. I'm going to stop there a minute. Last chapter, the religious leaders had wanted to stop Peter and John, but they couldn't figure out how to justify arresting them for healing someone. But now, in chapter 5, they have something to act on. Because they had commanded Peter and John not to teach and speak in Jesus' name, and they had. So now they had a charge, and they had them thrown in jail. And I can imagine their relief knowing that the Peter and John situation has been contained. It was now in their control... And tomorrow when they finished breakfast and they were ready on their own terms, they could assemble the necessary people and they could decide what to do with these rebels, giving out this God knowledge so indiscriminately. And I'm sure they went to bed that night with confidence that the situation was under their control. But they were wrong. Read on to verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. The good news is on the loose. 
It will not be contained. It will not be controlled. Peter wanted Peter and John, or God wanted Peter and John to tell everyone about this new life in Jesus' name, no matter who wanted to silence them. And they know who's in charge, so they do. And meanwhile, can you just picture the men in power assembling, getting their cups of coffee, griping about how they have to take care of this issue with these rogue preachers this morning, completely unaware that they no longer have anyone in custody to deal with. The river of God's power flowing around and through these little human obstacles to his progress. Verse 21 continues. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. We're ready now. Bring them to us. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain, the temple guard, and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Isn't that great? Can't you imagine the guards thinking, whoa, how's this going to play out? Because when the powerful find themselves looking foolish, it can be a dangerous situation. Continues in verse 25. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The tables have turned all of a sudden. The ones who were in control can't even keep their prisoners in jail, and they'd intended to use their power to intimidate, to dominate, to silence them. But as it turned out, instead their soldiers had to go to the temple and ask them if they would come. Don't you love it? And the story continues in 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. They're talking about Jesus there. Notice their objection was about a threat to their power. We told you to stop and you didn't. And what you're saying makes us look bad. Their objection was about guarding their control. And Peter and John's answer was simply to remind the Sanhedrin who actually is in control. In verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. They're on a mission from God to open up forgiveness through Christ. Verse 32, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Ouch. These leaders have to ask themselves, are they trying to obey God? People's words never hurt more than when they actually convict us of something that's true in ourselves. Verse 33 continues, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. The same reaction they had to Jesus which is actually quite a compliment. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people persecute you because of me. You can see very clearly here how fear and desire to hold on to control blinded these religious leaders. And here's where they're blessed to have had the company of a certain man. Continues in 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Wise words from a wise man. Because the power of Jesus is unstoppable. And 2,000 years later, the truth of this new life in Jesus Christ is still changing lives all over the world. The power of God is like a mighty river flowing through human history to reshape it and to draw into life those who will let go of the things that we so desperately cling to to build ourselves and simply let him be the power to draw us into life. Gamaliel was humble enough to put his own ego aside to ask God what he wanted, to wait on God instead of building monuments to himself. So what will we learn from this story? Will we do the same in our lives? Do you ever find yourself fighting against God? What is it that you are clinging to What are you holding on to, afraid to let go and let God be in control of it? What do you want to hold on to that's not what God wants for you? I think so many times in our lives we think we know what's best for us and we try to push through things that we think would be good for us and good for others without seeking what God wants And I think I understand why. It's really scary to think of us not being in control. But God isn't asking us to live without stability. God is asking us to trust him and his goodness and his power, to trust him with our lives, to let him take control of the timing of our schedules and our accomplishments and our relationships. And to live trusting him, it takes relinquishing of control. It takes surrender. It takes discussing things with him, listening to him, following him. It takes active engagement with God in his word. It takes faith in God's power to heal and to reshape and to bring good even out of the things that seem most broken in this world. And I think this story is so important for us to understand what it means for God to be in control and for us to live in relationship with God in this broken world. And for two reasons. First of all, I think it's so hopeful to see Gamaliel give us this example of stepping aside from what we think we want and instead ask God to show what's true in every situation in life. And if that's something that's resonating with you today, I just ask you to listen to that wisdom. To ask God to show you where he is at work, where the river of his power is flowing in the situations in your life, and to give you eyes to see where he's already moving, and to jump into that current, to surrender those things in your life that you're clinging on to that might not be what God wants for you. I invite you to inspect the word and to listen and to wrestle with God in those things, to follow that example. And secondly, I think this story is very important for us because of what comes next. I think so many times we can get in our mind a picture of what we think it means that God is in control, uh, what that means for our future. And real life sometimes can throw some cold water on that. 
The next text, Gamaliel spoke to the Sanhedrin in verse 40. His speech persuaded them. And just when we think this is a happy ending, we hit the next line. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. What? Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So here the apostles stand up, they're faithful to God, and they get beaten? Something in us cries out, that can't be right. In that situation, wouldn't you be asking yourself, God, what did I do wrong? Why are you punishing me? Because that tends to be our reaction when bad things happen in our lives. But notice for these disciples here, that thought never even enters their minds. The text continues in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They rejoice that they are deemed worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They see the resistance of the world to Jesus and these struggles as a sign that they're actually doing something right. They notice that we are living in a spiritual battle zone for the hearts of men and women that God gave his all to save. And it doesn't dishearten them to see these struggles because these apostles have seen the mighty floodwaters of God's powerful, persistent love, of consistent and holiness pouring out. And they've seen that they're just one little part of that unstoppable flow. Knowing that they have eternal security, not in what they can control, but in what God has secured in Jesus Christ. They see these human reactions just like small potatoes because they know the one who holds them. As the songwriter once said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. The story shows us that true peace, strength, and joy is found only when we surrender to God's control. But surrender to God is not passivity. Because Peter and John were not passive by any stretch of the imagination. They just knew that they didn't need to control the outcome. They were just called to be faithful with what was in front of them, and they could trust God to do the rest. Where our world is busy, frantically building monuments to our own glory, holding on to our own glory, God is quietly working to redirect us and to teach us to let go and just let him lead, lead each one of us into his life. As Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And if you look, you can see that this is happening in our world today. It's in the places where human beings have no illusions that they're in control, that it seems like God's Holy Spirit is growing the church at the most powerful ways and the most incredible rates. When we will depend on him, he will move, as he is in China and Africa and India, all around the world. But sometimes the greatest obstacles to God's power being at work in our lives is how much control we think we actually have. So do you want to know joy? Ask yourself, who's in control of your life? Let's pray. Lord God, today we invite you to move in us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in a way that we can't contain in a way that we can't control. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to be Lord of our lives and draw us by your Holy Spirit into the current of your will, your love, of your design for this world. We trust that you are good, Lord. Blessed are those who know they are dependent on your power. 
Lord, may the loving persistence of your grace flow around the obstacles of all of our human resistance to you. Run into the cracks. Draw out real life in us today, Lord, as we surrender to you. Give us the peace of knowing that we're held by your promise and led into a life that makes a real difference for eternity, not because of our power, but because of your power at work in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.